What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Jeremy Larris. It's been a few days since my last episode. I got a lot to catch up on over the next day or so. A lot of news in the world of sports, including Damian Lillard being traded from the Portland Trail Blazers to the Milwaukee Bucks in a surprise deal yesterday. I'll give my thoughts on that in a different episode. This episode is going to be a week two and week three recap of the NFL. I didn't get to preview all of week three's games, unfortunately, like I typically do. So I'm going to give a recap of everything that happened last week in week two. I guess it's two weeks ago now in the NFL, and then I'll recap what happened this past weekend in Week 3. So let's start off with a Week 2 recap. So in Week 2, the Cincinnati Bengals lost another game. They fell to 0-2 to an injury-plagued Ravens team, losing that one 27-24. The Ravens found a way to score points in offense with a lot of their starters being out, including Odell Beckham Jr. and also Tyler Linderbaum, their starting center, among other players as well. They were also out in this game. They found a way to win, though, scoring on four straight drives between the second and third quarters which are big boosts to the offense that were missing a ton of start, as I said. Lamar Jackson, though, did play well in this one, 24-33 passing, with 237 passing yards, two touchdowns, and 12 carries of 54 yards on the ground. Looked a lot better in Week 2 than he did in Week 1. As for the Bengals, they fell in this one, falling to 0-2. They did finish the regular season last year, 12-4, after losing the first two games of last season as well. And they did find a way to get back on track with a win in Week 3. Joe Burrow's calf injury is still a bother to him, though. You could see it in this Week 2 game and then also as well in Week 3. In this Week 2 game, he was 27-41 passing against the Ravens with 222 passing yards, two touchdowns, and a pick. Jamar Chase had a quiet day against the Ravens secondary, just five catches for 31 yards in this one. The biggest storyline in Week 2 probably was Puka Nakua, who dominated yet again in Week 2 just like he did in Week 1. He became the first player in NFL history to have 10 receptions and 100 receiving yards in each of their first two career games. That's a stat according to ESPN. Nakua's 25 catches in his first two career games is the most by a player ever in NFL history. 19 was the next closest by Earl Cooper in 1980. Now Nakua has that record with 25 in his first two career games. He was getting targeted a ton in the first two games. 35 targets in his first two career games, including 20 in Week 2. In his first two games, 25 catches, 266 yards. No touchdowns, though. Didn't get in the end zone in Week 1 or Week 2 or even in Week 3 as well. In this past draft in April, he was a 20th wide receiver taken. He seems like the steal of the draft. I mentioned him in my preseason predictions a lot. I said that I thought he could have a big year, especially with Cooper Cup being out for the first few games. And if you look at it, he's shown up in each of the first three games and has had an impact for the Rams offense with Cup being out. I was reading in the offseason that he could play a role in the slot and that Sean McVay loved him in the offseason workouts. And at the end of the day, it looks like he did shine in the offseason to get this big of a role within the first three games of his career. So credit to Nakua and how great he's been. In his Week 2 game against San Francisco, he had 15 catches on 20 targets. 20 targets with 147 yards in that game. So credit to Nakua and how great he's been. The Rams did make a trade, though, this past week, trading running back Cam Akers to the Minnesota Vikings in exchange for future late-round draft picks. Kyron Williams is now their lead back, which he was after week one. You could tell that they were drifting that way with Williams being the lead back. But with that being said, you can never really trust Sean McVay with running backs. You can never trust him. He's never had a consistent running back since Todd Gurley left. He's had Sony Michelle, Cam Akers, Daryl Henderson, and now Kyron Williams. It could be only a matter of time until McVay looks to recycle yet another running back and switch gears from Kyron Williams to another one. We'll see if that's the case. That's probably unlikely as of right now since they really don't have any other running backs and nobody else touched the ball in week three at the running back position for the Rams. But at the end of the day, you can never trust McVay with running backs. You can't. He recycles running backs in and out every single year, so you can never really 
figure that the guy that they have in there right now will be there back a year from now or even three weeks from now. You never really know. And that's why at one point I thought of trading Kyron Williams in fantasy football since I feel like his value is highest right now, especially after week two it was highest. Week three didn't really have that great of a game, but it was highest after week two, and you can never really trust the Rams with running back. So I looked to trade him, but I never really got an offer back that I liked, so I still have Williams on a couple of my fantasy teams the way things stand right now. I'm excited to see what this offense looks like a week from now when Cooper Cup is back. I think at the end of the day, Cooper Cup will still be that wide receiver one of this offense. I think Nakua steps back from wide receiver one and becomes maybe the wide receiver two, maybe plays the Robert Woods role that they had for so many years. And then I think the wide receiver three in the offense will still be 2-2 two, two Atwell. I think he'll go from 2-1. to one. He's been balling, though, this year, so credit to him. Former Louisville wide receiver finally breaking out in the NFL. But I think at the end of the day, I think Cooper Cup is still the alpha in this offense. So now I'm going to move on and talk about the Chiefs-Jaguars game from Week 2. The Chiefs won this one 17-9. It was a 7-6 game at halftime with Kansas City leading. I thought it would be a close game, but I never really thought it would be a low-scoring one like this. I thought it would be a high-scoring shootout game between these two teams. There were no touchdowns scored in this one by Jacksonville, unfortunately. Sad to see the offense be cold in this one, considering how good they were in Week 1. And offense on a very high on. They were cold again in Week 2, which I'll get to that at the end of the episode. It's still very early in the season, but they still have stuff to work on on offense. Trevor Lawrence was poor in this one versus Kansas City. Just 22 of 41 passing for 216 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. With two fumbles, one of them being lost. He was blitzed 18 times in this game, was sacked four times with 17 pressures. And he also had 10 poor throws in this one. So he did struggle mightily against Kansas City. They really put pressure on him, made it hot on him. Evan Ingram was a yards after the catch. King in this one for Jacksonville. Six catches for 57 yards with 54 yards coming after the catch. Patrick Mahomes had a good game for Kansas City. 29-41 passing. 305 yards, two touchdowns, a pick, and seven carries for 30 yards on the ground. I think Jacksonville's offense will be fine, but they do still have things to figure out, especially after what they looked like in Week 3. Travis Kelsey and Chris Jones did return to the lineup for Kansas City, and they looked like no time really passed for them. Kelsey, four catches for 26 yards and a touchdown, and then Jones had one and a half sacks. With the pass deflection, a tackle for a loss, and two quarterback hits in this one, both of them returned to the lineup and looked really good for Kansas City. In Week 2, the Cowboys blew out the Aaron Rodgers-list New York Jets, 30-10 in this one. It was an 18-10 game at halftime. The Cowboys kicked four second-half field goals to win the game 30-20. Zach Wilson struggled mightily in this one, 12-27 passing, 170 yards, a touchdown, three deceptions, and was sacked three times. Micah Parsons dominated the Jets' offensive line all game, had two sacks, four quarterback hits, a forced fumble, and a fumble recovery. Dak Prescott, 31-38 of passing, 255 yards, two touchdowns, no picks, and threw both of his touchdowns in this game to tight ends, something Dak Prescott has done very well in his Cowboys career is finding tight ends in the end zone, in the red zone. Next up, we have the Atlanta Falcons take down the Green Bay Packers in a 25-24 win with the Falcons approving to 2-0 in Week 2. Atlanta won the game on a 25-yard field goal from Youngway Koo with 57 seconds to go. This was probably Desmond Ritter's best game as a starter in the NFL. 19-32 passing, which wasn't great. He wasn't really elite passing the ball, but it was good enough to get the win here. And it was better than what he was in most weeks passing the ball. 237 passing yards, a touchdown with an interception, also adding in 10 carries for 39 yards and a touchdown. He isn't asked to really do too much in this offense, but I'd like to see him look for Drake London more downfield like he did in Week 2 in this game in Week 2. First Green Bay, London had six catches for 67 yards and a touchdown. Hopefully he can find him more this week in their game against Jacksonville. Next up, the Buffalo Bills blew out the Las Vegas Raiders in Week 2, 38-10. I thought this game was going to be a close one, but boy was I wrong in this one. 38-10 with the Bills winning that one. 17 unanswered points by Buffalo in the second half. Las Vegas really did themselves in with turnovers. Three turnovers by the Raiders. 
Buffalo handed the ball very well in this game, unlike week one. They had zero turnovers in a big game from Josh Allen, who was 31 of 37 passing for 274 yards and three touchdowns. Jimmy Garoppolo, two interceptions and under 200 passing yards in this game with just one touchdown. Poor game from Jimmy G, a guy that usually takes care of the ball, but he did struggle in that one with two interceptions. The Chargers dropped to 0-2 in week two after a 27-24 loss in overtime to the Titans. Through the first two weeks, the 2023 Chargers were the first team in NFL history to start 0-2 despite scoring 50-plus points combined between their first two games and having zero giveaways in their first two games. And that's per the NFL's research team there on that stat. This team is far enough talented to make the playoffs and make a run in the AFC. But at the end of the day, I think they are held back by their head coach, Brandon Staley. It is very hard to compete at any level when you have a head coach that's not competent. And I don't think Brandon Staley's really the answer for them. I think they'd be better off getting rid of Staley maybe after the season is over and then looking to add another guy at the helm. I think they'd be better off with that considering Brandon Staley has really struggled with time management, especially going for it on fourth down in his career. He had a questionable fourth down play in the fourth quarter of this game this past Sunday in week three. They still ended up getting the win, so at the end of the day, people aren't going to really go at him as much as they would if the Chargers lost that game. But I think Brandon Staley is what is holding back that Chargers team. So through the first two weeks of the season, the Chargers blitzed the fifth most in the NFL. Yet in the first two weeks, they were 29th in quarterback pressure percentage. So they were blitzing a ton, but weren't really generating much pressure in the first two weeks. Herbert in week two played very well. Wasn't his fault at all for this loss against Tennessee. 27-41 passing, 305 yards and two touchdowns. Ryan Tannehill had a bounce-back game in Week 2. Week 1, he struggled. Week 2, he looked pretty good, though, against the Chargers. 20 of 24 passing, 246 yards, a touchdown, no picks, and a rushing touchdown as well. So two total touchdowns for Tannehill in this one. Derrick Henry looks like he's slowing down a little bit, especially in snap count with Tadze Spears, the running back, out-snapping him. But he played well against the Chargers in Week 2, finishing with 25 carries for 80 yards on the ground and a touchdown. So I'm going to mention a couple more games from Week 2, and then I'll move on to my Week 3 recap. So the Dolphins played the Patriots on Sunday Night Football in Week 2. Miami won that game 24-17. The Patriots did have the ball, though, with under a minute to go and a chance to go down the field and tie the game. They actually had a last play of the game that was very interesting where it was a lateral play. The Cole Strange, a starting guard for the Patriots, ends up getting the ball and fighting for the first down line, which it was fourth down for the Patriots. Mac Jones completed a pass to Mike Gusecki. Gusecki, knowing he's going to fall short of the line to gain, tried to throw a lateral in the air. Finds Cole Strange, starting guard for the Patriots. He ends up running with the ball, trying to get to the first down. It does not get to the first down marker, unfortunately, to get the first down. But it was a very interesting last play of the game. Had he got the first down, the Patriots would have a chance with the ball, with a minute to go, and a first set of downs down by seven. Uh, but they end up falling short, and the Dolphins end up winning the game. Two attack of a low, improved to 5-0 and versus Bill Belichick in his career. He's now one of four quarterbacks in NFL history to have a 5-0 and record or better against a Super Bowl-winning head coach, joining Peyton Manning, Russell Wilson, and Chris Chandler. And that's according to ESPN stats there. So pretty good class there for two attack of a low, joining Russell Wilson and Peyton Manning in that stat there, having a 5-0 and or better record against a Super Bowl-winning head coach. And per next-gen stats, Tua Tagovailoa averaged the fourth quickest time to throw, which was 2.08 seconds, of any quarterback in a game since 2020 in this game against the Patriots. So in Week 2, he averaged the fourth quickest time to throw of any quarterback in a game since 2020, just 2.08 seconds. Tua also is the only quarterback with the time to throw under 2.2 seconds to average eight air yards per attempt in a game over that same span. So he's the only quarterback to ever throw under 2.2 seconds, an average over eight air yards per attempt in a game. 
And he did that all on Sunday Night Football versus the Patriots in Week 2. Which, honestly, at the end of the day, I think Tua Tagovailoa has proven himself to people now. If you blitz Tua, you could be in trouble since he reads through his progression so efficiently and so quick. And yes, it does help having Jalen Waddle and Tyree Kill as your receivers. But he's great with accuracy. And he's also very good at decision-making. His IQ for the game is very strong. So credit to Tua. He was criticized a lot heading into this season with his injuries and also people not thinking he could ever get to the next step. But Tua's proven people wrong in the first three weeks of the season. So credit to Tua. He has looked great. As for the Patriots, they lost this one. They fell to 0-2 for the first time since 2001. And in their first two games, that was the first time a Bill Belichick coach team trailed by 10 points or more in each of the first two games of the season. So the Patriots really have never been in this situation being down 0-2 with Belichick as a coach, especially in recent years when they're so used to starting out 2-0 or at least 1-1. They're never used to being 0-2. They end up getting a win in Week 3, which I'll talk about that at the end of the episode. But Belichick and the Patriots fell to 0-2 for the first time since 2001. And the Patriots did beat the Jets in Week 3, so they do pick up a win. But in their last nine games heading into Week 3, they were 2-7 in their last nine games. So heading into last week's game against the Jets, the Patriots were 2-7 and seven in their last nine games. But there were only two wins over that stretch against backup quarterbacks, Colt McCoy with Arizona and Skyler Thompson slash Teddy Bridgewater with the Dolphins. And with this win against the Jets, they pick up not only their first win of the season, but their 15th win against the Jets in a row. 15th win in a row. So that's impressive, obviously, beating them 15 times in a row for the Patriots franchise. And one thing I want to mention before leaving this game between the Dolphins and Patriots is Mike McDaniel. Not only is he a great coach, he has so much swagger about him, and he's so chill. He's different than any other coach in the NFL. He really is. Very likable head coach, and I'm rooting for him and the Dolphins to continue to play well for the rest of the season. I had Mike McDaniel as a top three head coach in the NFL before the season began, and now you're seeing it. Mike McDaniel is an absolute genius, and now you can see what this Dolphins team actually can look like if Tua Tagovailoa can stay healthy. So much speed in that offense. Tyree Kill, Jalen Walder, Devon A-Chain, who was great in Week 3, Raheem Mostert. They're a very talented team and could do big things, especially considering they have one of the best offensive minds and one of the best coaches in the NFL in Mike McDaniel. So now I'm going to talk about the last game in Week 2 that I'm going to mention before transitioning to Week 3, and that was the Monday Night Football game between the Steelers and the Browns. The Steelers ended up picking up a win in this one, 26-22, heavily thanks to their defense. Their defense really carried them in this one. The Steelers' offense had just nine first downs in the game, so they struggled heavily trying to move the ball. Kenny Pickett was just 15 of 30 passing, 222 passing yards, a touchdown, an interception, and two sacks. He did get George Pickens going, though, four catches for 127 yards and a touchdown. The Steelers really won this game, though, because of their defense forcing four turnovers and also having two defensive touchdowns. They also sacked Deshaun Watson six times and also forced two fumbles against Deshaun Watson. So that's a big reason the Steelers won this game. It's because of their defense, not their offense. The Browns' offense really struggled in this one. Deshaun Watson gave him a pick six on the first play of the game. Also had a strip sack by Steelers defensive lineman Alex Highsmith that was picked up and returned for a touchdown by T.J. Watt. Highsmith had a huge game on the Steelers' defensive line. He had a pick six of Deshaun Watson and also had seven tackles, a tackle for a loss, two quarterback hits, and a forced fumble, along with that pick six that I mentioned. So credit to Highsmith for a big night. And the T.J. Watt also had that return for a touchdown on the forced fumble by Highsmith. Deshaun Watson had a poor game, 22 of 40 passing, 235 yards, a touchdown, a pick, was sacked six times, had two fumbles lost, with three total turnovers and just one touchdown on the night. And to make matters worse for this team, 
The Browns will not have Nick Chubb for the rest of the season after he suffered a knee injury in this game on Monday Night Football versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. He will now miss the remainder of the season, which is a huge loss to their offense and obviously a huge loss to the NFL as well. Nick Chubb is one of the best offensive players in the game. So heading into week three, I was going to record an episode and talk about everything I just mentioned, and I was going to rank the 0-2 teams in the NFL by the chances to make the playoffs. And so I'm going to give you what I had before week three, and it was the Bengals at one with the best chances to make the playoffs, the Chargers at two, the Vikings at three, the Patriots at four, the Texans at five, the Broncos at six, the Panthers at seven, the Bears at eight, and the Cardinals at nine. And according to Sports Illustrated, only three teams have gone to the Super Bowl after losing the first two games of the season. The 1993 Cowboys the 2001 Patriots, and the 2007 Giants. Only three teams have gone on to win the Super Bowl after losing the first two games of the season. So all of these teams have a lot to try to figure out and fix before the end of the season. And obviously, there's still a lot of games left. Heading into week three, there were still 15 games left. Now, heading into week four, there's 14 games left. I would still stand by my list that I made heading into week three, but maybe I'd put the Patriots now above the Vikings, considering the Vikings are now 0-3 and the Patriots are 1-2. and And I'd also probably put the Cardinals now around 6 or 7. They had a big win in week three over the Cowboys, and they've showed a lot of promise in the first three weeks of the season. It's not going to be their year to contend right now, but they have a hard-fighting team and a good coach. That team's going to be dangerous a couple years from now when they get things figured out. So now I'm going to move on and talk about the week three season of the NFL, give you a recap of that. I'll start off with the Dolphins torching the Broncos for 70 points on Sunday, just three points shy of breaking the NFL record, and that was the most in a game since 1966. The Dolphins beat the Broncos in this one 70-20. Yes, you heard me right, 70-20, the Dolphins beat the Broncos in this one. The Dolphins had 10 offensive touchdowns. They scored more in one week in this game in week three, than every team the NFL has this season. Ten offensive touchdowns is more than every team in the NFL has this season, and the Dolphins did that in just week three. The Chargers have the second most touchdowns in the NFL at ten. The only other team in double digits after the first three weeks of the season is the LA Chargers. Besides them, no other team has ten offensive touchdowns in the NFL. The Dolphins did this in just one week. On the season, Miami now has 17 touchdowns, while the New York Jets and Tennessee Titans only have three apiece. And people act like the Dolphins are just rising this year, just at this moment. But they were bowling last year before Tua Tagovailoa got hurt as well. And Tua Tagovailoa, interestingly enough, has the same stat line between weeks one through three this year than he did last year. In 2022 and in 2023, Tua Tagovailoa had a 3-0 record with eight passing touchdowns and two interceptions and 72 completions out of 101 attempts. He has the exact same stat line through the first three weeks of this season that he did through the first three weeks of last season. So Tua was balling last year as well, especially in week one. He started off the year very hot last season. No one's going to really give Tua the credit he deserved before this season because it was easy to pick on him for his injuries, and also the Dolphins really never made a big playoff run with him, so it was easy for people to say, oh, Tua's never going to get you to where you want to get to. But Tua was balling last season as well, and honestly, he didn't deserve the disrespect he got last year because the injuries he had Weren't things he could prepare for. He really had a tough stretch of injuries and some bad luck. Two, when he is healthy, though, he is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. I had him, I think, at seventh in my rankings heading into the season, and I still stand by that he's even better than that right now. He's right now the MVP front runner for a reason. Tua, in this week three game versus Denver, had 309 passing yards and four touchdowns. Tyreek Hill had nine catches for 157 yards and a touchdown. Devon A. Chain, a running back I was very high on. In the offseason, in a lot of my predictions, I said I think A-Chan is going to end up being the lead back for this Dolphins team. He's a rookie back from Texas A&M. I was a big fan of his speed. And in this game against Denver, he had 233 total yards and four touchdowns, including a 67-yard touchdown run in the fourth quarter. Raheem Mostert, 142 total yards and three touchdowns in this one. 
And the Dolphins' offense overall combined to 726 yards. And they did this all without Tyreek Hill, who missed this game with a concussion. And one interesting stat I saw from Sleeper, which is a fantasy football app, if you only started Dolphins on your fantasy team, your team would have scored 203.76 points this week. 204 points they would have scored as a team if you just started Mostert and the rest of those guys I just named in your starting lineup. If you just started the Miami Dolphins, you would have scored 204 points in fantasy football in week three. And part of the reason that this team is so good is because of the track star speed they have in their offensive weapons. Tyreek Hill, Devon A-Chain, Raheem Mostert, Jalen Waddle, all very quick, very fast, shifty players. And if you look at a stat that I saw from Next Gen Stats in the NFL, the fastest ball carries in the NFL in a single game this season all come from the skill position group on the Miami Dolphins. With Tyreek Hill being the fastest player in the NFL with the ball in his hands this season, 22.07 miles per hour in Week 3. Devon A. Chain in Week 3, 21.93 miles per hour. Tyreek Hill in Week 1, 21.66 miles per hour. Raheem Mostert in Week 2, 21.62 miles per hour. Tyreek Hill in Week 1, 21.52 miles per hour. Devon A. Chain in Week 3, 21.5 miles per hour. The Dolphins have each of the top six fastest speeds for a ball carry in the NFL this season. So credit to Hill, A-Chain, Mostert, and that's not even including Jalen Waddle, who is, once again, another great, shifty, quick wide receiver, another threat on that offense next to Tyree Kill and those two running backs I mentioned in A-Chain and Mostert. As for the Broncos in this game, their defense was abysmal. There's no other way to put it. They played with zero effort, and it was like they were just letting Miami score at one point in the fourth quarter. They just didn't care. And that's not really a great look for Sean Payton, who made fun of former Broncos head coach Nathaniel Hackett. During training camp, Sean Payton took a couple of jabs at Hackett and basically said he didn't run the franchise well at all, and it was a disaster last year with him as the head coach. And if you look at what the Broncos looked like in Week 3, they looked worse in Week 3 than they did at all during the Nathaniel Hackett era, which is crazy to say considering how poor of a year the Broncos had last season. But when watching that Broncos team in Week 3 versus Miami, I saw no effort, no care, no hot, no hustle. Nobody cared on that team. They gave up 70 points, and it's just like, yeah, whatever. They didn't care one bit. So that's obviously not a good look for Sean Payton, especially when Sean Payton was criticizing Nathaniel Hackett during training camp. The Broncos look worse now than they did last year, and that's crazy to say. Even with Russell Wilson playing better football overall this season, he's looked a lot better this year than he did last year, and is quietly having a bounce-back season, even though it's not enough for the Broncos to win a game. They're still 0-3. The Broncos look worse now than they did last season. And they're in a difficult position because of the Russell Wilson situation. He's making $40-plus million dollars for not only this year, but the next five seasons after this one ends. He's making $40-plus million for this season and five more years after this year ends. He doesn't opt out after a couple seasons from now, but he's not going to opt out. He's going to take that money realistically. So six more years of him making $40-plus million. And if you look at what Seattle got in return for Russell Wilson, they got Drew Locke, Noah Fant, Shelby Harris, two first-round picks, two second-round picks, and a fifth-round pick in exchange for an aging Russell Wilson and a fourth-round pick. So what a pickup for Seattle in this deal. And Seattle built their offensive line in their secondary with those two first-round picks they got from Denver. They got Charles Cross in the first round of the NFL Draft in 2022, and they got Devin Witherspoon at the fifth overall pick in the 2023 NFL Draft. So they've built their secondary and their offensive line with those first-round picks. As for the Broncos, they're in an even worse position now than they were when they traded for Russell Wilson because when they traded for Sean Payton in January, they had to give up not only a first-round pick in 2023, which was the 29th overall pick, 
but also a second-round pick in 2024. And in return, they got Sean Payton in a 2024 third-round pick. But they gave up a first-round pick and a second-round pick to get Sean Payton, and their team's in complete ruins right now. 0-3, and they're failing to give any effort. And there's still 14 games left to go, so hopefully this team finds a way to turn things around. But based on the way they looked in Week 3 against Miami, that team didn't care at all. They didn't care one bit. The Broncos have scored just 69 points all season, and they gave up 70 points to Miami in just one game in Week 3. So the next Week 3 game we're going to mention is Dallas falling to the Arizona Cardinals in a surprise game, 28-16. Major props to Cardinals head coach Jonathan Gannon. He's an absolute gem of a coach. I like what I've seen out of this Cardinals team. They're 1-2 on the year, but the Cardinals had a lead in all three games this season in the fourth quarter. So clearly the Cardinals play hard for him, and this was a game where nobody really expected them to even be in it, and they found a way to win. They also lost a tough game in Week 2 against the Giants where they were up by three touchdowns at one point in the third quarter. And then in Week 1, they had a chance to win that game as well against Washington. They ended up blowing it in the fourth quarter. But they won 1-2 on the season and could have easily have won both of those games they lost and been 3-0. Which is crazy to say considering how low of expectations I had for this Cardinals team. But clearly this team plays hard for Jonathan Gannon and they're a lot more underrated than I thought they'd be. I thought this team was going to struggle to move the ball. But credit to Josh Dobbs. He's looked very good. He was 17-21 passing in this game, 189 yards on touchdown with six carries of 55 yards on the ground. James Conner was a workhorse for them yet again in Week 3. It shocked me how well he's looked at this point of the season through the first three weeks. He had 14 carries and 98 yards on a touchdown. Hollywood Brown, five catches for 61 yards on a touchdown. Their offense somehow found a way to move the ball in all three games this season. And they put up 28 points against the Dallas team. And a Dallas defense... That was basically the best in the NFL heading into week three. They found a way to put up 28 points and win that game 28-16. So credit to Arizona. Credit to them. With that being said, though, Dallas didn't have Tyron Smith and also didn't have Trayvon Diggs, who unfortunately tore his ACL in practice last week and will miss the remainder of the season, which is a big loss for the Cowboys secondary. But they still have Stephon Gilmore as their number one corner. But obviously Diggs is a big loss considering he's one of the best defensive backs in the NFL. With that being said, though, a win's a win, and nobody gave this Cardinals team a chance. Even with those three plays out that I mentioned, nobody thought the Cardinals would win this game over the Cowboys. Josh Dobbs, in that game, found a way to move the ball and was very consistent and efficient in this one. And that's even with Micah Parsons having another big week. Five tackles, a sack, a tackle for a loss, and two quarterback hits. But it wasn't enough to stop Josh Dobbs and company. Dak Prescott had a bad end zone interception. It kind of brought back memories of Dak Prescott last season. That was one of the passes he'd make last year, just trying to make something happen when nothing was. It was the same thing as last year. Dak finished the game 25-40 with 249 passing yards, a touchdown, and a pick. The next game I'm going to mention is another surprise win, and that was the Houston Texans beating the Jacksonville Jaguars 37-17. Credit to C.J. Stroud. He was absolutely balling in this one, and I had him in my top half of the quarterbacks in the NFL before the season began. I ranked every quarterback in the NFL based on where I think they're going to be at the end of the year. I had C.J. Stroud around, I think it was 16 or 17. And I know a lot of people didn't see that. I got a lot of comments about it. But I thought C.J. Stroud would be able to produce with less around him than some other quarterbacks that have more around them. And he's been very impressive through the first three weeks of the season. He's catching people's eyes, and for good reason. 20 of 30 passing in this game against Jacksonville. 280 yards and two touchdowns, also adding in three carries for 14 yards in this one. And he's found a way to connect with Tank Dell. 
a rookie wide receiver from Houston, a guy that I thought would have a connection with him. I mentioned him a lot before the season began in my predictions. I said Tank Dell was a guy to keep your eye on as a late-round gem in fantasy. And in week three, Dell proved why I thought that. Five catches for 145 yards and a touchdown. And then you look at C.J. Stroud's numbers on the year. Four touchdowns with no interceptions. With 906 passing yards, a 64.5% complete percentage, and also averaging 302 passing yards per game. With a 98 passer rating and a 50 quarterback rating. Credit to C.J. Stroud. He's found a way to do it even with a poor offensive line. He's been sacked 11 times this year and has been pressed on 28.3% of dropbacks. And he's found a way to look downfield and make big passes. So credit to Stroud. He has looked great through the first three weeks of the season. And they picked up a big win over Jacksonville in week three. A surprise game, 37-17. I thought the Texans would be in this one. I thought they'd lose by maybe a score at the end of the game in the fourth quarter. But they really found a way to be consistent in this game on offense. And now it brings up the question. Is it time to worry about Jacksonville after two straight losses, which they lost last week to the Kansas City Chiefs, then in week three losing to the Texans? I think that is a worry losing to the Texans. Even though I thought the Texans would be in this game, Jacksonville's the better team. Jacksonville's the better team. They had higher expectations. So that's why I'm disappointed with Jacksonville's loss here to Houston. And even though I don't think it's fully time to worry about this team, if they lose in week four, then I'd really worry about them. But Trevor Lawrence in this offense has to figure it out. They struggled yet again for the second week in a row. They were down 17 to nothing at halftime. Lawrence in this game, 27 to 40 passing for 279 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. A lot of those yards came in the second half. And then Calvin Ridley had just three catches, 440 yards, ended up getting hurt in this game as well, and did struggle with drops when he was in the game. So not a great look for their offense. I think Jacksonville will be fine, but they are one and two, and they have to wake up right now. I'm going to move on and talk about the Cincinnati Bengals who picked up their first win of the season over the Rams on Monday Night Football. Winning that one 19-16. Joe Burrow battled a calf injury in this one, the same injury that he suffered in the offseason and has had to deal with now through the first few weeks of the season. Gets the Bengals a win though, 26-49 passing with 259 passing yards and an interception. He did get Jamar Chase going in this one. Their connection is back. Chase finished the game with 12 catches for 141 yards. Matt Stafford did struggle in this one for the Rams and was under constant pressure the entire game. 18 of 33 passing for 269 yards, a touchdown, and two interceptions. Was also sacked six times in this one. Puka Nakua had a quieter day in Week 3 than he did in Week 1 or Week 2. Finished the game five catches for 72 yards. Trey Hendrickson was very good for the Bengals' defensive line. He had two sacks of Matt Stafford, while Aaron Donald had a great game for the Rams' defensive line. No surprise there. Seven tackles with a sack, two tackles for a loss, and two quarterback hits. The Colts had a surprise win over the Ravens, 22-19 in overtime. The Colts were impressive in this game. Even without Anthony Richardson, they found a way to win this one and never gave up at any point of the game. Gardner Minshew was a starting quarterback for them, 27-44 passing with 227 passing yards and a touchdown. He was also sacked five times in this game, was under a lot of pressure, but found a way to get the win. Zach Moss was great on the ground out of the backfield. 30 carries for 122 yards, two catches for 23 yards and a receiving touchdown. We'll see what happens with Jonathan Taylor and if he'll actually go back to the Colts. He can return very soon. But I still think he doesn't play for Indy this year. I think he ends up being traded. And even though Miami doesn't need a running back anymore, some other teams could go out there and look for one. Maybe the Baltimore Ravens, just to name one. Maybe the Buffalo Bills, who knows. But there's going to be a team that's going to be interested in Jonathan Taylor if he does become available again for trade midseason. We'll see what happens there. But the way Zach Moss is playing right now, maybe they just say, hey, we're not going to re-sign Jonathan Taylor anyways. We're not going to give him the money he wants. Let's trade him and try to get some value back. As for the Ravens in this one, Lamar Jackson was 22 of 31 passing for 202 yards, 14 carries for 101 yards, and two touchdowns. 
Looked like the, the vintage Lamar Jackson from a few years ago, running the ball very elusively, just was effortless running, obviously, with his pure speed. It doesn't even look like he's trying, but he's making guys miss left and right every single time he crosses the line of scrimmage. He found Zay Flowers for eight catches and 48 yards in this one. This game was a lot of back and forth between the two teams. The Ravens took a 19-16 lead with two minutes and three seconds left in the game after getting a safety, tackling Godna Minshew in the end zone for a sack. But Matt Gay... Had two big kicks for Indianapolis, including a 53-yarder with under a minute to go in regulation to tie the game and send it to overtime. And then he also had the game-winning kick, another 53-yard field goal in overtime to win. As for the Ravens kicker, Justin Tucker, he actually had a chance of winning the game for the Ravens, kicking a 61-yard field goal as time expired, but ends up missing the kick, unfortunately. He was just a little bit short on the 61-yard attempt. So it ends up going to overtime where the Ravens end up losing to the Colts. That was actually Tucker's first miss in 18 attempts. In the final minute of regulation. So impressive to have that long of a streak. But when you're attempting 61-yard field goals, you never really get the benefit of the doubt that it's always going to go, unfortunately. So tough kick there for Justin Tucker. He didn't make it close, though. As for the Colts kicker, Matt Gay, who I already mentioned, he had a historic day kicking the ball. No kicker in NFL history has ever hit four field goals for 50-plus yards in one game. And he was 5-5 five five in this game on kicks with four of them going for 50-plus yards. So he made history in this day for the Colts, getting them a big win over the Ravens as well. So the next game I'm going to mention is the Chargers picking up their first win of the season over the Minnesota Vikings, winning that one 28-24. The Vikings are now 0-3 on the season, all three games being one-score games. And that was something they really excelled in last year. They were great in one-score games. This year, 0-3. Last year, 11-0 in one-score games. So their luck has changed in one-score games. That's obviously tough for the Vikings. Kirk Cousins has looked very good, though. It hasn't been his fault for the reason they are 0-3 to start the season. The Vikings were down 21-10 in the third quarter. They battled back to take a 24-21 lead with 11 minutes to go. Ended up losing the game on a 30-yard touchdown pass from Justin Herbert to Josh Palmer with 8 minutes to go. Kirk in this one, 32-50 passing, 367 yards, three touchdowns, interception, was sacked four times, he was under pressure, and continues to be one of the most hit quarterbacks in the NFL week in and week out. Justin Jefferson, seven catches for 149 yards and a touchdown. The Chargers lost Mike Williams for the rest of the season, unfortunately, suffered a knee injury in this one. That's a brutal loss to a big part of their offense, but they did draft Quinton Johnston, who has similar size, has more speed than Mike Williams. Hopefully he can step in now with a better opportunity and get a chance to show off. Justin Herbert in this one was great, 40-47 passing, 405 passing yards with three touchdowns and no interceptions. A perfect day for Justin Herbert, carried the Chargers to a win and gets them a big win, a win that they needed. They couldn't start at 0-3. If you go 0-3, a chance of making the playoffs are very, very, very slim. You get a win in Week 3 and you improve to 1-2, you have a chance to win in Week 4 and get back to 500. And that's really what you want. When you start at 0-2, if you can get yourself back to 500, then it's a clean slate restart and see where things go. So hopefully the Chargers get themselves back this week to 500 with a win in week four. Keenan Allen had a great game in this one. 18 catches for 215 yards with the 49-yard touchdown pass as well to Mike Williams. A career day for Allen, who's going to be expected to now do even more considering Mike Williams is done for the season. And Austin Eckler has missed some games now and he's probably going to miss this weekend as well. So there's a lot on Keenan Allen and Quinton Johnston to carry that offense for Justin Herbert. Josh Palmer has been pretty good, though, stepping in, especially last season. Had a touchdown in this one to win the game for the Chargers, so we'll see what he can do in replacement of Mike Williams. But without Mike Williams, it's obviously tough. The Chargers did have a big spot in the fourth quarter in this one. With 1 minute 51 seconds to go in the game, the Chargers were on their own 24-yard line with a 4th and one opportunity. They decided to just go for it rather than punting the ball. They end up getting stopped. Joshua Kelly tries to run the ball up the middle. 
ends up getting tackled and falling short of the line to gain. So it ends up being a turnover on downs there, and the Vikings pick up the ball on the 24-yard line, down by four points with a minute 51 to go. Luckily for the Chargers' sake, they end up winning the game. Kirk Cousins threw an end zone interception to Kenneth Murray, a linebacker for the Chargers, ends up winning them the game with 15 seconds to go, but the Vikings were on the six-yard line with 15 seconds left. They had a big play on fourth down. It was fourth and five on the Chargers' 15. A nine-yard pass by Kirk Cousins to TJ Hawkinson gets them a first down and puts them on the six-yard line. Then they end up wasting from 42 seconds to 15 seconds before they snap the ball again. So they wasted about 20 seconds right there, 25 seconds before snapping another play there. And then ends up being a big difference maker with Kirk Cousins probably just trying to rush that pass, trying to get a playoff as quick as he can since when you snap the ball 15 seconds left, realistically you're going to get two plays, maybe three at best, uh, especially considering there's only 15 seconds left, you have no timeout. So very questionable decision there. By the Chargers to go for it in their own territory in fourth and one. If they end up getting the first down, they win the game right there. But when you turn it over there and you give the Vikings the chance with the ball on the 24-yard line with a minute 50 to go, that's a big risk. It ends up working out, though, for the Chargers, but that is a big gamble. And Brandon Staley really did dodge a bullet with this win because he would have been ripped to shreds by the media, ESPN, Fox Sports, Twitter, whatever it may be, if the Chargers lost this game. Especially considering his track record of a lot of questionable decisions that have costed the Chargers some wins over the years. So now I'm going to move on and talk about the Cleveland Browns who destroyed the Tennessee Titans 27-3 in Week 3. The Browns approved a 2-1 on the year. This was a better game for Deshaun Watson than he had last Monday night versus Pittsburgh. He was 27-33 passing for 289 yards and two touchdowns. He did fumble the ball in this game, but it wasn't a lost fumble. That's something he's been struggling with, though, is fumbling the ball, especially early this season. Jerome Ford was the lead back for the Browns with Nick Chubb out for the year. The Browns didn't really have to run the ball much in this one. They just had 10 carries to Ford in this one for 18 yards and a touchdown. Ford also did add in two carries for 33 yards and a touchdown in the year as well. So two total touchdowns for Ford in Chubb's absence. Miles Garrett was an absolute force in this one. Was getting double-teamed consistently just about the entire game versus Tennessee. And he had five tackles, three and a half sacks, three tackles for a loss, five quarterback hits, and a forced fumble. What a monster start to the year for Miles Garrett. Four and a half sacks now on the year. And that game against Tennessee, there was a point during the game where Tennessee was motioning two tight ends to try to block on the side that Miles Garrett was lining up on. So Miles Garrett just kept going from the left side to the right side to the right edge to the left edge to the right edge to the left edge on the defensive line. And he drew two tight ends each time he did that. And the tight ends didn't even get set in time, and it costed the Tennessee Titans a timeout. And that's just how dominant he was in this game. They had to have, they had to have the left tackle or the right tackle blocking Miles Garrett, and then also had a motion over two tight ends to try to contain him to the best of their ability. And that's how good he was in this one. Tennessee's offense didn't look good at all. It was very weak in this game. Ryan Tannehill, 13-25 passing for 104 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. He was sacked five times in this game. Derrick Henry didn't look good either. 11 carries, 420 yards on the ground. Taze Spears, backup running back, who's a rookie, continues to get touches and outsnap Derrick Henry each week, which isn't great for the future of Derrick Henry as a lead back in this offense. If Derrick Henry ever stumbles and Taze Spears has a big game or two, Spears could end up being the lead back. Who knows? Maybe Tennessee would try to trade Derrick Henry considering he is an expiring contract at the end of the year. That's a hot take. I don't think they're going to probably trade him. But you never know. If they continue to lose games, they're 1-2 right now. If they lose a couple more games, maybe they're at 1-4 and, and they see Spears being potentially the lead back for them in the future, which I think he probably ends up being the lead back a year from now, considering I think Derrick Henry will be done with the Titans. Maybe they end up moving Derrick Henry. We'll see what happens there. 
So now I'm going to move on to talk about the Patriots who beat the Jets in week 3, 15-10. Another rough week for Zach Wilson. Struggled heavily under center for the Jets. 18 of 36 passing, 157 yards with no interceptions, but was sacked three times in this one. One of them being for a safety in the fourth quarter to make it a 15-10 game with two minutes to go. The Jets were just 2 of 14 on third down. So obviously they struggled to try to convert on third down. That was a big reason they lost this game. The Jets did have three chances, though, in the last three minutes of the game to try to go down the field and either take the lead or even on their first drive with under three minutes to go, they could have kicked the field goal and tied it up. They were down by just one score with three drives on offense in the last three minutes of the game, and they came up short on all three drives. And I think at the end of the day, that obviously proves the Jets' offense has been struggling without Aaron Rodgers, and obviously Zach Wilson has been struggling. I'm rooting for him to do well. I thought he could keep the Jets competitive. I think the thing with Zach Wilson right now is everybody's lost faith in him. There's a lot of reports that the Jets' defense is against Robert Salah because he's been showing a lot of support to Zach Wilson. And you saw on the sidelines in this game against the Patriots, Michael Carter was very upset. Garrett Wilson has been upset. So when you start losing the guys around you, and you obviously feel the pressure of the fans and the media, it's probably easy for Zach Wilson to get in his head about all of this. And I think at the end of the day, I don't think it's really Zach Wilson's fault for the reason the Jets right now are 1-2. The Jets went into the season with expectations of Aaron Rodgers bringing them to the promised land of winning a Super Bowl. And he ends up getting hurt four snaps into the season. So it's not on Zach Wilson for the reason the Jets aren't going to get to where they want to get to. Their expectations this year were all about Aaron Rodgers. And when he goes down, you can't blame Zach Wilson for them not to get to the Super Bowl. Because they pretty much were done with Zach Wilson after last season ended. But they decided to bring him back. Maybe because they couldn't really get much back in return. Maybe because they thought he'd be a good backup with Aaron Rodgers. Maybe Aaron Rodgers could teach him. Maybe they could develop him. Who knows what their thoughts were in the offseason. But it's not on Zach Wilson for the reason the Jets right now are 1-2. and two. The Jets are 1-2 and two because Aaron Rodgers got hurt in the first four snaps of the season. With that being said, I thought Zach Wilson would keep them competitive. I thought he would keep them competitive. Even though I thought the Jets would lose this game to the Patriots, I thought the Jets would be able to score a couple touchdowns versus the Patriots. I thought they'd be able to move the ball down the field consistently. But they had three chances in the last three minutes of the game, and they weren't able to score to either tie the game or take the lead. And I think it also tells a lot about the Patriots, considering that the Patriots... Couldn't get a first down to end the game. The Patriots couldn't get the job done by getting first downs in the last three minutes. They had to punt the ball three times with under three minutes to go, giving the Jets three chances. Three chances, down by one score with a chance to win the game with under three minutes to go. And obviously the Jets fell short of that. They did just add Trevor Simeon to their quarterback room. We'll see how that plays out. It seems like he'll just be the backup. I know a lot of people, I'm mad at Zach Wilson, including Joe Namath, Hall of Fame quarterback and former legend for the New York Jets. He said he has seen enough of Zach Wilson. But my response is this. At the end of the day, Zach Wilson wasn't supposed to be the guy for them this season. I know Zach Wilson was the second pick overall in the draft in 2021. There were great expectations around him to be their franchise quarterback. It felt like that you know, kind of drifted away. Those expectations weren't the same heading into this season considering they brought in Aaron Rodgers. Nobody even thought Zach Wilson would even be a factor in this season. And then when Aaron Rodgers gets hurt, Ford plays into the season, now all of a sudden the entire team and all of their aspirations to try to go and win a Super Bowl are all on Zach Wilson. And with that being said, I know I've said that I supported Zach Wilson. I thought he'd have a good season this year. I thought he'd be able to keep them competitive and still have a fighting chance to try to make the playoffs. I didn't think they'd make the playoffs when Aaron Rodgers went down. I thought Zach Wilson would keep them competitive, maybe be a game just outside of the playoffs. But now they're 1-2, and two, so the season is drifting away even more. But I think when you look at Zach Wilson, what is Robert Sala supposed to do? When he's talking to the media, is he supposed to say, no, we don't believe in Zach Wilson, and we know since Aaron Rodgers is hurt, our season's going down the drain, and there's nothing we can do about it? No. A head coach is never supposed to go up to the media like that and put a player down. 
And I know a lot of people in the locker room are probably upset, especially the defense. According to reports, they're very upset with Robert Sala. But what can you do at the end of the day? What is Robert Sala supposed to do? The Jets don't have any other option except to just try to roll with Zach Wilson and see what happens. Unless they go out and make a trade, which they're very unwilling to do considering they've spent so much money the past year getting Aaron Rodgers. And even though Aaron Rodgers did take a pay cut, Still a big contract, and you also have to go out there and trade for Aaron Rodgers giving up all those picks. You give him a lot of money, but you give him picks. You also gave Quinton Williams a big extension. You go out and get some free agents like me, Carl Hodman, and Alan Lazard. The Jets did a lot this offseason to try to go out there and win right now. And their expectations were all centered around Aaron Rodgers being there and Aaron Rodgers being healthy. But now that things aren't working out, considering Rodgers went down four plays into the season, all of a sudden, the entire burden of the year and their field season which it's not completely over yet, but they are one and two heading into week four. It's all falling on Zach Wilson. And I think with Zach Wilson, I think he needs confidence. If you've ever played sports, I think we all know how important it is to have a coach, a teammate, a friend, whatever it may be, support you through the good and the bad. Because at the end of the day, not everyone's going to be going out there making plays 24-7. Everybody makes mistakes when you play sports. Zach Wilson has struggled heavily this year and has struggled a lot of the time as a starter. But if you have a head coach that doesn't believe in you, that's brutal for your confidence. Because confidence, a lot of the time, is a big difference maker. And it seems like Zach Wilson's playing in his head and is going out there, especially early in the game, not trying to make a mistake. Because of all of the attention he got over the last year from the media, whether it was analysts or people on social media, everyone coming at him for his turnovers. And now it seems like he's reluctant to try to make a big pass early in a game because he doesn't want to make a turnover and end up being the reason the Jets lose the game. And then late in the game, all of a sudden they're losing, and he can just send it downfield and say, screw it, hands up throwing an interception or having a bad pass. Or even you know earlier in games, he tries to force a pass when something's not there because he wants to go out there and make a play. But I think when you look at this Zach Wilson situation, a big part of the game of football, a big part of sports in general, is confidence. And it seems like he's not playing with much confidence. Even if he was playing confidently, maybe it wouldn't be the answer for them at quarterback. Maybe he's not going to win them the Super Bowl. But I thought he was at least going to keep them competitive. And if you look at the Jets right now, their locker room, everybody on social media, every analyst, ESPN, Fox, whatever it may be, nobody's giving this kid a chance. And that's what I usually root for. I usually root for kids that are underdogs, that everybody's against, everybody's criticizing, especially considering when Zach Wilson wasn't the main reason the Jets season has gone awry. They're one and two, but it's because Aaron Rodgers got hurt. It's not on Zach Wilson for the Aaron Rodgers situation. It's not. Aaron Rodgers goes down. There goes a lot of their expectations to go out there and win a Super Bowl. But that's not something people are really mentioning. Everybody's just mentioning, oh, the Jets right now are 1-2 because of Zach Wilson. At the end of the day, the Jets' season was already going down the drain to some degree when Aaron Rodgers went down. Because it's really hard for Zach Wilson to step up off the bench and now take this team to the Super Bowl. Considering last season the Jets had a good defense, they had some good skill position players, and nobody had the expectations for them to win the Super Bowl with Zach Wilson. And now when he steps in a quarterback this year, all of a sudden, all the pressure is on him to try to bring them to the promised land. And in reality, with Aaron Rodgers going down, that was their chances right there. And to win this game, as I said, the Jets had three chances with the ball, with under three minutes to go to try to go out there and win the game. They end up failing on a Hail Mary attempt at the end of the game. Pretty impressive throw by Zach Wilson. Ends up reaching the goal line. The Jets actually had a chance there. Randall Cobb on a deflection maybe could have caught that ball in the end zone for the win. Ends up missing, so the Jets end up losing this one. Mac Jones wasn't very impressive in this game. Good enough to get the win, though. 15-29 to 29 passing for 201 yards and a touchdown. Wasn't sacked at all against a very good Jets defense. The Jets defense had zero sacks in this game, something not many people really expected. And this one, the Patriots offensive line was something that was talked about a lot 
during the offseason, and they played well in week one versus the Philadelphia Eagles defensive line, and then played well in week three versus the Jets defensive line. They did struggle in week two versus Miami, but in two of the first three weeks of the season, the Patriots offensive line has looked pretty good. So a lot better than people giving them credit for in the offseason, including myself. I thought their offensive line would be a struggle. Mac did have seven bad throws in this game, which added up to 26% of his pass attempts. 26% of his pass attempts in this game were poor throws. Zach Wilson in this one, for comparison, four bad throws for 14% as a bad throw percentage in this game. 14% of Zach Wilson's throws were bad in this game. But Mac Jones, 26%. So Mac didn't look great in this one. Good enough to get the win, though, nevertheless. And with that being said, I know I just mentioned the Jets a ton. The Jets offense couldn't move the ball much at all. So even with Zach Wilson not having many poor throws, he wasn't making any big throws either. Wasn't making any great throws. And that's the difference maker in this game. The Jets need Zach Wilson to be better. They need him to be better in reality. And I think at the end of the day, he's set up for failure having to step in for Aaron Rodgers four plays into the season because their expectations to win a Super Bowl all centered around Aaron Rodgers. When Aaron Rodgers goes down, all of a sudden now it all shifts to Zach Wilson's shoulders. The Jets were outgained in this one, 358 to 171. They were outgained on offense, 358 to 171. So obviously the offense needs to get better. And I'm hoping Zach Wilson can do so. I really do hope this kid can turn things around and try to silence a lot of people that are against him right now. I really do hope for his sake. The last game I'm going to mention was between the Chiefs and the Bears. And the Chiefs end up winning this one 41 to 10. Wasn't really much of a surprise. But the big storyline in this game was all about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. It wasn't about Patrick Mahomes' 300 total yards and three touchdowns. It was all about Taylor Swift being at the game with Travis Kelsey's family, Donna Kelsey included, and all of Travis Kelsey's family and friends in a suite at Arrowhead Stadium. And there honestly wasn't a point in the game when the NFL didn't switch a camera over to see what that suite was doing and show Taylor Swift. It was like every play, which at the end of the day, I get what the NFL's doing. They're trying to market the game a little bit more. And I think this is my viewpoint of the situation, which I'm happy for them at the end of the day if they are legitimately dating, which I don't know if it's just them seeing each other right now or they're dating. I'm happy for them at the end of the day. But I think the NFL is loving the coverage between Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Because not only are more people now watching the NFL, which the NFL didn't really need any help for people to watch on Sunday. It's still the biggest thing in sports in America. Everybody loves turning on Sunday football and watching football from kickoff at 1 o'clock all the way through Sunday Night Football, getting ready for Monday Night Football as well. Everybody loves that in America. But now there's more people watching football because everybody wants to see Taylor Swift at the game. So it's adding in all the Swifties, all of her fan base. Everybody's tuning in to see what the Chiefs are doing. And it's not like the Chiefs needed any more attention either. They've always been a powerhouse with Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes together. And now more and more people are watching. Kelsey gained 383,000 followers on Instagram. And this was yesterday, so it's probably even more now. But he gained over 383,000 followers on Instagram. And now his podcast with his brother, Jason Kelsey is now number one in Apple Podcasts. So not only is it helping the NFL's brand, more and more people are watching Travis Kelsey play, watching the Chiefs play, and now they're obviously listening to Travis Kelsey's podcast and he's getting more followers. They're also making more money in jersey sales. Travis Kelsey's jersey sales have gone up by 400%. So not only are the Swifties tuning in and watching the game, they're also buying jerseys and paying more attention now to the NFL. And I think this could be good for Taylor Swift's marketing as well, which she didn't need any help either. She's already on top of the world and the biggest superstar in the world when we currently speak right now. But she does have another album coming out, Taylor's version of 1989 coming out in October, on October 27th, just about a month from today. And maybe this relationship with Travis Kelsey would get her a couple more views from the NFL world, which she doesn't need any more help, but maybe a few more fans would tune in. With that being said, though, she doesn't need any help. She's already on top of the world in the music industry and the biggest superstar in the world. 
She doesn't need a relationship to try to get more players on her songs. At the end of the day, she's already at the top of the world. She doesn't need help. But maybe to some degree, it's getting hyped up, their relationship, by social media. And at the end of the day, it's helping Travis Kelsey's podcast and obviously helping his jersey sales and maybe even dragging more attention to the NFL. But Kelsey, Taylor Swift, the NFL, they don't need help. And I hope, you know, for their sake that they are happy. Maybe they aren't dating. Maybe they're just seeing each other. I don't know what it is. No one really knows. It's all speculation. But rumor has it that she will be at the Chiefs-Jets game on Sunday night for Sunday Night Football at MetLife Stadium. And she'll get the pleasure of seeing Zach Wilson play in this one, which I'm hoping Zach Wilson can turn things around. And there's no better time to turn things around than on primetime TV with the whole world watching, especially with all the Swifties watching. More and more people are going to be tuning into Sunday Night Football. More and more people are going to be watching this game. So if Zach Wilson can turn things around in primetime TV like that, he'd gain a lot more respect. And at the end of the day, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but this is a big situation, a big spot for Zach Wilson to go out there and do big things. Because more and more people are going to be watching this game than they were watching a Sunday game versus the Patriots. And with this Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift situation, as I said, I think to some degree, I think both of them are gaining more attention. And maybe that's part of the reason they're doing what they're doing. I'm not saying that is the reason, but that's some speculation. They both are doing well for themselves already, and now they're getting even more and more attention from each of their respective fan bases. And as I said, just about every single play, it seemed like the camera shifting over to showing Taylor Swift in the suite, celebrating, especially when Travis Kelsey had a touchdown catch to make it a 41 nothing game in the third quarter. You saw Taylor Swift and everybody in the suite going nuts. Kelsey finished the game, seven catches, 469 yards, and a touchdown. The Bears really struggled in this one. Their last win was October 24th of 2022. It's just about 11 months ago now was the last time that the Chicago Bears won a game. And in this one, Justin Fields struggled. 11-22 passing for 99 yards, a touchdown in interception with 11 carries, 447 yards on the ground. The Bears did score 10 points in the fourth quarter in garbage time, finishing the game with 10 points, scoring 10 points in the fourth quarter, giving up none in the fourth quarter. So at least they had one good quarter of football there against Kansas City. At the end of the day, I know it was garbage time, but it is good going into your game next week saying, okay, at least we could put a good quarter together at the end of the day. Even if it's garbage time against backups, we put a good quarter together. We'll see what we can do next week. DJ Moore finished this game, three catches for 41 yards and a touchdown. So we'll see what happens. And now my next episode, I will preview every game of the week four slate in the NFL season. So tune into that. Stay tuned. Anyways, that will conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it and hope you guys have a good one. Thank you as always. And I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you.